1: For years, food delivery startups failed to make any real money, but lockdowns have shifted their fortunes. Those delivery middlemen are now raking it in. Can they prosper with more scrutiny, regulation, and the end of the pandemic? And there's a clear trend in golf. The pros are smashing the ball farther and farther, faster than course designers can keep up with. That's costly in a number of ways, and not just a little dispiriting to weekend duffers who don't take such a long shot. But first... Today, America's House Armed Services Committee will hold a hearing on the current situation in Afghanistan and on the country's future. Earlier this week, the Pentagon announced that America will cut its military presence there, as well as in Iraq.
2: By January 15th, 2021, our forces, their size in Afghanistan, will be 2,500 troops. Our force size in Iraq will
1: also- By the time President Donald Trump leaves office in January, the number of American soldiers in Afghanistan will have fallen by 2,000. That has some officials worried, including Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell.
2: A rapid withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan now would hurt our allies and delight, delight the people who wish us harm.
1: Pulling America out of its forever wars has long been a goal of the outgoing president.
3: Great nations do not fight endless wars.
1: In February, his administration signed a deal with the Taliban, although, as Secretary of State Mike Pompeo cautioned, it came with conditions.
0: We will closely watch the Taliban's compliance with their commitments and calibrate the pace of our withdrawal to their actions.
1: Seven months later, historic negotiations began in Doha between the Taliban's political leadership and envoys from the Afghan government. The talks have been years in the making, they bring hope that more than four decades of conflict might at last come to an end. But progress has been slow. And in the meantime, the Taliban have been strengthening their grip on the country.
3: So I was in Kabul recently, and in the city centre, things feel fairly normal, but you go out to the edge of the city and there's definitely a sense of siege.
1: Daniel Knowles is our international correspondent.
3: Neighbourhoods by the highways at the edge of the city People tell you that they hear shooting in the night, the Taliban put roadblocks up at night. And as you get out of the city, you get into territory where there may be government outposts. I visited one where soldiers keep a guard on the highway, but at night, really, the Taliban are in control.
1: And meanwhile, peace talks between the Taliban and the internationally recognized government are carrying on. Do you get the sense that an end to this seemingly endless war is, is finally in sight?
3: No, not really. The peace talks started in Doha in September. They really came out of the deal that America struck with the Taliban in February, which one of the conditions of it was that the Taliban would enter into a negotiation with the government in Kabul. And that started and you had this sight of Taliban leaders sitting down in a conference room with a bunch of Afghan government officials. But they haven't really got very far. They've been stuck on issues like jurisprudence and the format of the talks. They haven't got onto the really big weighty issues like what the constitution should look like and how Afghanistan ought to be governed after peace.
1: And the announcement this week that the Trump administration is determined to do a troop drawdown much more quickly, how does that impact the dynamic, do you think?
3: Under the deal that America struck with the Taliban, the plan was to sort of withdraw most of the soldiers by June of next year. And America has already withdrawn about half of the number of soldiers. They've come down from 9,000 to 4,500 already. And now Donald Trump wants to go fast and come down to 2,500 by the end of his term. But the Taliban, you know, they have not hugely stuck to their half of the deal. It's not only the talks not going anywhere there hasn't been a reduction of violence, which was one thing that was hoped. And, you know, there's not much evidence that they've disavowed the links to extremists that they were meant to. So there's a lot of reasons to think that the Taliban basically don't really care about the deal. And that's why NATO officials have been very worried. Uh, some American government officials are very worried that basically the Taliban see this as America retreating rather than a deal.
1: Well, we have something of a a preview, I guess, of how the Taliban will react to that with the drawdowns that have been going on this year. I mean, how has that affected things on the ground?
3: The Taliban have really been consolidating their military position. Recently, violence has sort of intensified especially the last few months. They have been trying to seize districts in parts of the country. They launched a big attack in Lashkagar, which is the provincial capital of Helmand province in October. They've also been strengthening their grip on the roads, um, making people pay taxes, that sort of thing. So they're basically trying to improve their military position as much as possible.
1: You mentioned the collection of taxes. That sounds like a very different kind of regime than one of just violence.
3: The Taliban have never been purely sort of a military organisation. Their success doesn't come from that. What they do is they provide a sort of shadow government. In the 1990s, they came to power by helping merchants, providing security on the roads. And they're sort of doing the same thing now. In the villages, in the rural areas, they control, they'll charge farmers taxes. They have checkpoints on the roads where they charge standardized amounts to vehicles coming through and they run their own court system. They provide quite brutal but quite efficient sort of justice, you know, resolve disputes and things. And in a lot of places where there are government schools, government clinics, the staff are still paid for by the government in Kabul, but the Taliban sort of co-opt them and make sure that people turn up to work and, and take credit for them as well.
1: But that doesn't sound so different from coercion, extortion, intimidation.
3: The Taliban are not popular, that's for sure, but they're sort of accepted because, in the areas they control, there is a level of security and certain things work. So. That's made it possible for them to sort of consolidate and hold territory. One of the things that they exploit is the government's failure to provide services and the government's failure to keep and control corruption. Land theft is a sort of big problem. You have an Afghan government which really is very distrusted and very sort of unscrupulous and a lot of security forces and a lot of people who are basically indulging a lot of uh, highway robbery and the Taliban don't do that to the same extent or they do it in a more regimented, efficient way at any rate.
1: Highway robbery, but with a receipt.
3: Exactly. That is literally the difference. You you will get a receipt from the Taliban. You won't get a receipt from the government.
1: So if the Taliban is consolidating power in the way that you describe, what do you think that means for resolving the conflict around the table in Doha?
3: The Taliban are not going to be defeated. So they have to be sort of included in whatever government comes out of these peace talks. If you're going to have peace, they're going to have to have a, a role to play somehow. And the question is how big a role that is, what it looks like. And how much power they can seize, you know, I think the trouble with the situation at the moment is that they're getting stronger militarily and the Afghan government is getting weaker. And with America withdrawing, that process could just accelerate. And so the Taliban get into a position where they can kind of claim whatever they want because they have the option of attacking cities and just sort of taking over outright.
1: So what's to be done then in in particular in international quarters to give Afghans the best prospects for eventual peace?
3: This is the big question coming up. Donald Trump obviously wants to get troops out and by doing so before the end of his term he's handing a very difficult situation to Joe Biden when he takes over because it's much more difficult to put more troops back in than it is to not take them out in the first place politically. NATO allies, even some American military commanders are very sort of nervous about this further withdrawal because of the risk it raises of the Taliban really taking more military strength. And I think what Biden is going to have to confront in office is how bad the situation is and will he have to put some more troops back in or is he willing to let the military situation just slide further. It's going to be pretty messy and politically difficult, I think.
1: Daniel, thank you very much for your time.
3: Thank you, Jason.
1: It's a familiar tale. To gain customers, startups ruthlessly compete for market share, slashing prices and offering discounts to the delight of ride hailers mattress buyers, and exhausted home cooks. The likes of Uber Eats, Deliveroo, and DoorDash have been fighting tooth and nail for every customer and burned through a lot of cash and calories in the process.
0: They're actually losing money every time you deal with them.
2: Part of the reason maybe is maybe is there's too much
3: competition.
0: Economics of almost every one of these service companies, Uber, DoorDash, Instacart, you name
3: it, have been based on burning cash to a winner-take-all position.
1: Now, though, fortunes have shifted. These delivery middlemen aren't just bringing dinner, they're cleaning up.
4: It's really been Silicon Valley's least popular business model in years, essentially because it doesn't make very much profit or any profit. But the pandemic has really rehabilitated it.
1: Tamsin Booth is The Economist's technology and business editor.
4: You can see that trend really on steroids with the DoorDash IPO. DoorDash is America's biggest food delivery company. So the firm filed its IPO documents on November 13th, and everyone was waiting to see what its numbers were going to be like. And what you saw in the numbers was just really astonishing growth. Uber Eats, also you've seen in recent results that revenue's been up 125%. And the lack of profitability is just receding into the distance. It's just probably the world's fastest growing mainstream business.
1: And all of that growth is due to the pandemic?
4: Well, that's the question that everyone is asking. And DoorDash warns investors very clearly in its IPO documents, our growth is going to slow as the pandemic hopefully ebbs. But there's a few reasons to think that this phenomenon will last. So people are going to be nervous about going out for a year or two, very likely. And I think what has changed is that the habit of ordering food has really become ingrained, especially among teens and millennials. And the big structural shift that is also definitely here to stay is that the pandemic has convinced the vast majority of restaurants onto these platforms. And so you've got a lot more high-end restaurants on these platforms. Before, they would have been quite snooty about being on the platforms that were delivering pizza or Chinese food. But now they're all on there. But at the same time, none of that takes away from the fact that it's incredibly hard to make a profit in these models.
1: Why, though? If it's so incredibly popular, why isn't there plenty of money to go around?
4: So these digital food delivery companies, the model has been around since the turn of the century, but it was significantly different. Companies like Grubhub in the US and Takeaway.com in Europe, they acted as middlemen between restaurants and consumers. The restaurants carried on delivering themselves, and that was a pretty profitable model. The new iteration of that from Silicon Valley is that these services are logistics operations. So they actually deliver the food to end consumers. And the reason that's really quite a tricky model is that essentially this usually quite small value of a food order has to be split three ways. The restaurant has to get its cut, the driver has to get paid, and then there's just not very much left over always for the delivery company. And as well as that difference in business model, it's just vastly competitive because there did seem to be a lot of consumer demand The companies like Uber Eats, DoorDash, Postmates were able to raise tons of venture capital money, fling subsidies at consumers, and therefore the competition was just crazy.
1: And how are those other competitors, the the companies, not just the ones in the US, all doing? Has the pandemic also turned around their fortunes?
4: Absolutely. It's a global pandemic and it has lifted all boats in this industry So you can see Delivery Hero in Berlin, orders have doubled, Just Eat in the UK, again, soaring numbers. There's lots of commentary about how how it's possible that Just Eat can be worth more than venerable industry giants like British Telecom or or Rolls-Royce. And you've also seen Meituan Dianping in China, which is the country's largest food delivery company, they recently turned profitable. And with the pandemic, boost. They're now valued at a really quite massive $230 billion in terms of market capitalization.
1: And so to your mind, what's next for, for the industry here? Will, will this tide continue to rise?
4: Well, the first thing to watch is how the DoorDash IPO goes. That's going to be early December. It looks like it's going to be a massive success. It's oversubscribed already. Further out, The question is whether a whole huge-sized, digitally-driven convenience economy is going to take hold. These firms are now branching into other areas beyond just restaurant meal delivery. They're going into bringing you convenience items, grocery, pharmacy deliveries. But when you ask what's coming next, I think there's also going to be a lot of backlash against this convenience economy model. It feels like you're getting a kind of class divide between the couched potatoes who are being delivered to and then the rather precariously paid people on the bikes and cars delivering stuff. So I think you're going to get a lot more attacks around the conditions and pay of drivers and and riders. There's nothing unusual in that among tech platforms. I mean, you can see DoorDash is merely joining the club, really, because, of course, Amazon... Google, they all rely on armies of of low-paid and often kind of invisible workers. So the fact is that consumers love the services, the convenience of them. I'm just not expecting any boycotts.
1: Thanks very much for your time, Tamsin.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: At this year's Masters Golf Tournament, a big driver of attention was that a long standing record was smashed. Back in 1997, Tiger Woods finished the tournament in 270 strokes.
0: He won by a record margin of 12 shots.
1: That feat has put pressure on players since. This year, Dustin Johnson gave a terrific performance, completing his rounds in 268.
2: In a year unlike any other, You gave a performance unlike any other.
1: That netted him a lot of green, of course. But Mr. Johnson beat that record, even though the Augusta national course is a fairway longer than it was back in 1997.
2: The game of golf has a length problem.
1: James Tozer is a data journalist at The Economist.
2: Over the years, players have got better and better at driving the ball farther from the tee towards the green. In the space of 40 years, the average drive length has increased by about 50 yards, from roughly 250 in the 1980s to 300 yards now. And that's a nightmare for golf regulators and for course owners.
1: You say golf has a length problem. I mean, what's the problem?
2: There's this constant arm wrestle between players and course designers. For Players obviously want to hit the ball as far as possible because their only concern is getting to the green as quickly as possible. But for course designers and for regulators, they want to make sure that the other parts of the game remain important, putting and chipping and so on. So the only way they can respond really to keep the game as a balance of different skills is to make the courses longer. And that creates all sorts of problems. It's largely a cost thing. It costs a lot of money to extend courses. There's some hand-wringing among golf regulators about the environmental costs of watering longer fairways and keeping them pristine and so on. But I think generally speaking, it's just sort of unsustainable for golf clubs to keep endlessly lengthening their
1: courses. Why is it for a game of this age that there should suddenly be this burst of length?
2: It's a mix of things that have happened over a very long period of time. At first, it seems like most of the gains were due to equipment. You saw this massive sort of arms race in producing bigger and longer and fatter and heavier clubs, which allowed players to smash the thing further down the course. But in the early 2000s, golf regulators cut down on this. So clubs have sort of been fixed in size since. And what you've seen is players working on their swing, basically, to to maximise their distance. You've seen them get a lot leaner and stronger, but they're also optimising their swings.
1: Optimising in what way?
2: There are three things at play, really, when a golfer swings. The first is how fast they swing the club. The second is what trajectory they hit the ball on, how high they hit it. And the last is the spin that they impart on the ball, the number of rotations per minute. We've downloaded data for these three metrics from the PGA Tour to explain why some players drive further than others and why some have been getting better. Those three things, when you put them together in a statistical model, explain something like 70% of the differences between players and also most of the changes that have happened over time. Players have been have been getting better at balancing those things. They do trade off against each other, but generally speaking, you want to hit the ball faster, you want to hit the ball higher, and you want to hit it with less spin so that it deviates less in the air.
1: So you say that regulators capped this problem when it was mostly about equipment by simply restricting the equipment. But I mean, what can they do about the perfecting of technique?
2: Well, the short answer is not much. There's no sort of rules, really, that that golf's administrators can introduce that will stop other people trying to do the same thing golfers already have become leaner through the years this swelling waistbands of years past have sort of slimmed down but i think you now might see players getting much bulkier up top looking more like american football players than say snooker players
1: james thanks very much for joining us thank you That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here on Monday.